Now, if you were here before Christmas, you'll know that uh, we were in the middle of a series on the Gospel of Mark, uh, written by one of the disciples of Jesus. So Mark followed Jesus around for the three years of his earthly ministry. And then he wrote a book entitled after himself about the person of Jesus, who he was, what he came to do, what happened to him. And we did chapters one to eight before Christmas. And you'd be glad to know we're now going to pick up again from chapter nine and we're going to do the rest of the gospel for the remainder um, of this term. So right up until the Easter break. Now the big idea of the whole series was that heaven and earth were never meant to be two separate places. And the gospel of Mark, the story of Jesus according to the disciple Mark, was of Jesus bringing those two things back together again. So you see in the grand narrative of scripture right at the beginning of the Bible, heaven and earth are one and the same place in the Garden of Eden. They're ripped apart because of what Adam and Eve did and as a result there's this kind of unraveling of humanity and this separating of heaven and earth and then Jesus bursts onto the scene and Jesus is in the process of bringing heaven and earth back together again and then as a church we're joining with Jesus in that mission and then we read right at the end of the Bible that there's going to come a time where heaven and earth are reunited finally again and in Revelation 21 we read that there's going to be no more suffering there's going to be no more tears there's going to be no more pain. Everything that doesn't feel like heaven is going to come to an end and it's going to be made new again. And so we're reading about Jesus bringing the two back together again. And you'll know that at the end of the last series, we started to talk about the fact that the disciples were expected to be a part of the solution according to Jesus. So at the beginning of the gospel, you see a lot of the disciples watching Jesus do what he did and then kind of on the sidelines going, whoa, that's amazing, that's incredible. Aren't you amazing, Jesus? Worshipping Jesus, applauding Jesus. And then Jesus turns it on them and says, now you do it. And starts to get them involved in bringing heaven and earth back together again. This means that as us as disciples, what does it mean to be a Christian? It means to be a disciple of Jesus. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? It means that we follow Jesus, that we're committed to becoming like Jesus, and most importantly, we start doing the things that we read about Jesus doing in the Gospels. Now, the weird thing about being a Christian is so often I hear, particularly in 21st century contexts of church in the West, not really in other churches across uh, in different parts of the world, is that there seems to be this huge gap between our expression and our experience of the church in 21st century Britain and the experience of the church in the book of Acts, the early church, the first century Christians. It feels like in the first century, there's this amazing, powerful, unbelievable events again and again, loads of things happening that really do suggest that the church and the believers and followers of Jesus really are bringing heaven and earth back together again. And then in the 21st century, it feels like there's a little bit of a lack of that. And so often we say things like, why is it the, the church isn't like the early church? Why isn't our experience of following the Jesus the same as the experience of the early church? And as a result, we do things like we start to really make um, Bible teaching and church about kind of teaching on self-help, teaching on how we can help ourselves become better people. We slip into religion. We slip into making it all about morality. All these different problems that come as a result of really not actually seeing the same power that the early Christians saw in the book of Acts. And so there's this chasm and the thing to know about the disciples is that when Jesus first asked the disciples to co-mission with him in bringing heaven and earth back together again, they didn't immediately get it. 
There was this process of learning for them and teaching from Jesus to them so that they got to a point of getting in it. It wasn't until his death and his resurrection and then being filled with the Holy Spirit that we finally see the disciples get it. And so leading up to our passage this morning in Mark 9, which is a hugely significant passage called the Transfiguration, there are a number of steps along the way that is important for us to realize and to understand so as to really understand what's going on in the transfiguration. Now there's going to be quite a bit of Bible this morning and James may have changed this but he was telling me off for making my font too small. Um, So if you do have a Bible on your phone you might want to open it because we're going to read big chunks. There are some Bibles at the back left over there if you want to go grab a Bible. We're going to start at Mark 4 from verse 35. Essentially, these are a series of stories and events where Jesus is teaching his disciples how to do what he was doing, bringing heaven and earth back together again. So this is the first one, Mark 4 from verse 35. This is where Jesus calms a storm. You may remember it from the series before Christmas. That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said, teacher, don't you care if we drown? And he got up and he rebuked the wind and he said to the waves, quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. And he said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and they asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Now, whenever we're reading a story or block of text like that, and as we're reading it, it feels like something really jumps out. It's really important to try and work out why that thing jumps out. Now, obviously, when you're reading a story about Jesus calming a storm, the whole thing jumps out, right? It's pretty miraculous. It's amazing. But I want to suggest that there's one particular line here that as we read it, as we think in terms of being a disciple, a follower of Jesus, it's probably worth us thinking a little bit more about and trying to work out why it's in there. Because there's a strange line here in verse 40 where essentially after he's rebuked the storm and everything's gone quiet, he says to his disciples, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? It seems a little unfair for Jesus to say that to them. After all, these guys were professional fishermen. They would have sailed and fished on this lake many, many times. They would have been used to these kinds of storms happening. This was clearly a huge storm because they were terrified. They were fearing for their own lives. And so they wake Jesus. He gets up and he calms the storm. And then he essentially rebukes the disciples for their lack of faith. It seems a little bit unfair. And so therefore we have to take note of it. And we have to ask ourselves now, what was it that Jesus was trying to teach them? So let's break down exactly what's happening here because really this is an example of prayer. So the disciples are in trouble. They ask Jesus to fix it. Jesus fixes it and it's a successful prayer. Now if we had that happening in our own life and as we do often with prayer, there's something that's going on that's troubling us that doesn't feel like heaven. It feels like it's out of control. It feels chaotic. Our response to that as disciples is to pray for Jesus to change the situation and if Jesus then goes on to change the situation, we think hooray, successful prayer and as a result our faith is raised. So what does Jesus say to the disciples in answer to a successful prayer that they're lacking in faith? It doesn't seem to make sense unless 
Is it possible that this is an example of Jesus expecting the disciples to do something about the situation rather than them asking him to do something about it? And as you read Mark, you realize this starts to become a little bit more obvious. So here's an explicit, explicit example. So this is Jesus sending out the 12. So the 12 disciples, followers of Jesus, up till now have really just watched Jesus do what he does. And now he sends them out to do exactly the same. It says this from Mark uh, 6 from verse 7. Calling the 12 to him, he began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. They went out and they preached that people should repent and should follow Jesus. And they drove out many demons and anointed with oil many people who were ill and healed them. And so remember when we talked about this uh, in the last series, uh, chapters one to eight, bringing heaven and earth back together again in the way that Jesus was doing it resulted in lots of power encounters. It was a power encounter between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of darkness. And when the kingdom of heaven storms the kingdom of darkness, there's this power encounter that happens. And it's what Jesus was experiencing as he's releasing people from demonic oppression, as he's healing people, as he's dealing with chaos and exactly what the disciples are experiencing here. What do we need to notice in this little passage? We need to notice that Jesus gives them authority to do exactly what he had been, uh, what they had previously just been watching him do. And so when you're given authority to do something, the general implication is that you're able to go on doing it. So for example, if you come to me and say, Ben, Um, I'd really love you to start mowing my lawn and uh, it's about to become spring and get really long and I know you've got that garden over there to deal with. It's only small, don't worry about it. Would you come and mow my lawn too? And here's a key for my shed and here's a key for the gate and you'll find a lawnmower in there and just have your run of of the back garden and mow the lawn. Now, if I were to then mow the lawn then come back to the person who asked me to mow the lawn and say, "Uh, do you want me to mow it again? Like, would you like me to come back? The person would say, well, obviously, I asked you to do it Um, for the whole summer and I gave you a key and I told you what to do like stop coming back to me just do it would you and then obviously I'd invoice you for lots and lots of money and uh, you would pay me tons of cash to mow your lawn does anyone need a job we have a lawn next door I'd love to have it mown Um, it would be very different if you had just said to me could you just this once would you mind just mowing my lawn this week because I haven't got time to do it it would make sense for me to then only do it once. Um, Weird analogy, but essentially what I'm saying is if you're given authority to do something, then the general implication is that you're able to go on doing it. And we see this again and again and again in the story of Jesus and the disciples. So in Luke 10, um, a similar incident happens as this, but this time Jesus sends out 72 of his disciples. You might know the story. They go out, they do exactly what they've been watching Jesus do, and they come back and they're rejoicing this said, Jesus, this is amazing. We're seeing exactly the same things that we saw you do. Even the demons submit to your name and flee. Isn't this incredible? And Jesus initially gets really excited and says, if you've seen that, I've seen much better than that. There's amazing things. And then he kind of checks himself and he says, but don't rejoice in that sort of stuff. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. What's he saying there? Well, I think the point of that 
is that he's saying to his disciples, you belong to heaven now. It makes perfect sense that you're seeing what you're seeing because your identity is as a citizen of heaven and not a citizen of earth. He's teaching them something. He's given them authority. As a result, they start to see the things that Jesus did happen through them. Sorry about the um, size of this text. Here's another example. This is Jesus feeding the 5,000. You would have thought the disciples have got it by now, but let's read this and see if they have. So this is from uh, verse 35 of Mark chapter 6. By this time it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place and it's already very late. Send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages to buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, that would take more than half a year's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? And then Jesus says, how many loaves do you have? Go and have a look and see. And when they found out, they said, we've got five loaves, we've got two fish. Then Jesus told them to make all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties and taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and he broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to distribute among the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and of fish and the number of men who had eaten was 5,000 which probably meant there were about 10,000 with the women and the children as well. So what is going on here in this passage? Well, I think it's probably the same thing. Jesus is trying to teach his disciples the same thing he was trying to teach them in the boat. You see, the disciples come to Jesus with a problem. They're saying, we're in a remote place, it's late, everyone's starving, and essentially we need to do something about this. They're thinking on a human level. They're thinking that we need, here's a practical problem and we need a practical solution. And Jesus' response to the disciples is brilliant. He says to them, you feed them. Why don't you just feed them? Give them something to eat. And theologians get flustered about when the miracle actually happens here in the story. Did it happen when Jesus got the loaves and the fish and that he blessed them and gave thanks to God? Or did it happen later on? Or did it happen even earlier on? Or some theologians who aren't Christians say, well, everyone just got their packed lunches out and started sharing it around. It wasn't a miracle at all. What actually happens, pretty obvious in the story, is that Jesus gives them the loaves and the fish as they were, five and two. And then the miracle happens as the disciples start handing the fish and the loaves out. It seems pretty obvious given the logic of what Mark's saying there. The food essentially was multiplied in the hands of the disciples. Here's the point. The disciples were thinking in the wrong way. They were applying human thinking to a human problem which actually required a spiritual solution. They were looking for human solutions to a problem they already had had heavenly power to fix. Next story. Jesus walks on water. These are some big ones. Mark 6 from verse 44. Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake and he was alone on the land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Starting to sound familiar? 
Shortly before dawn, he went out to them walking on the lake. He was about to pass them by, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke to them and he said, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. And then climbed into the boat with them and the wind died down. They were completely amazed for they had not understood about the loaves, their hearts were hardened. Again, which bit like points out for that part from the fact that Jesus is walking on water. What line kind of is highlighted there? What's quite confusing there? Well, this little commentary that Mark says there. He says the disciples were amazed. Why were they amazed? He says because they didn't understand about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. He's trying to link this story to the other events that we've just been talking about. So what's actually going on here? Well, water represents chaos. So water represents everything that heaven is not, essentially. And when there's a storm and the water is whipped up, that is essentially everything that heaven isn't supposed to be. So it's an example of heaven and earth not being one in the same place. And so by talking about Jesus walking on the water, he was actually repeating a lot of ancient Near Eastern mythology about what divine... Um, people in the power of the divine being that they represented were able to do in order to be able to subdue chaos. And so there's this picture of Jesus as God bringing a human solution and having authority and power over chaos. And then Mark tells us in verse 51 that he climbed into the boat with them and the wind died down. They were completely amazed for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. So what exactly does that mean? Well, Jesus, again, is teaching his disciples to stop looking for human solutions to problems that they already had heavenly power to fix themselves. You see, this is almost an identical scenario to Jesus calming the storm. He rebukes them for not having faith in that instance. And Mark's saying, essentially, in his little commentary, if they'd understood about the previous storm, if they'd understood about the lows, if they'd understood what Jesus was constantly trying to teach them, then they would have stopped straining at the oars and they would have calmed the storm themselves. You do it. You feed them. And we're introduced to a little bit more detail here by Mark because he tells us that their hearts were hardened. And so we start to begin to understand what it is that's stopping the disciples from acting as citizens of heaven, from acting as though they belong to heaven first before earth. Hard hearts, stubborn thinking results in an inability to do the things Jesus did. Last one, Jesus feeds the 4,000. We haven't even got to our passage. Sorry about this, but it was fun. So uh, Mark 8 from verse 1, another feeding miracle, 4,000 this time. During those days, another large crowd gathered since they had nothing to eat. Jesus called his disciples to him and said this, I have compassion for these people. They've already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. This is brilliant. He's setting them up. He's literally setting them up to win here. He says, if I send them home hungry, they're going to collapse on the way because some of them have come such a long distance. What's he trying to say there? Do you remember the last one? Do you remember what happened last time? Here's another opportunity. Why don't you have a go this time? The disciples answered in this way. But where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? Can you imagine what Jesus is doing? Jesus is probably just like, oh my goodness. Seriously. How many times do I have to tell you about this? What are you thinking? Can you stop this? Can you start actually doing what I'm telling you to do? But he doesn't say that. I would have said that. Jesus instead says, how many loaves do you have? 
Jesus uh, asked. And then seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. Exactly the same scenario when he'd taken the seven loaves and given thanks. He broke them. He gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people, and they did so. They had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks for them also and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate. They were satisfied. Afterwards, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. What is the point of that story? What's the point of the story before? What's the point of Jesus walking on the water? What is the point of Jesus calming the storm? What is he trying to teach his disciples the whole way along? He's trying to teach them to do it themselves. You do it, is what he's telling them. I'm with you, but can you start exercising the authority I've already given you? The disciples were supposed to be a part of the solution. They were supposed to be doing this with Jesus. And the key question for us and the key question that they had to answer in order to be able to see the things they saw in the book of Acts is how. How do we do the things that we see Jesus doing in the Gospels? Because we know, don't we, when we read the book of Acts, so this is post-crucifixion, post-resurrection, post the day of Pentecost when the disciples are filled with the holy presence of God, with the power of God. We see the early church explode out into the region and across the world. And we see things happen that are even greater than the things that the disciples saw Jesus doing, as Jesus predicted that they would. The key question for us now is how? How did they do that? Well, I think the clue is in this final bit of teaching from Jesus to the disciples before our passage this morning. I promise we'll get to our passage, but here's a little bit of teaching he gives before we get to our passage. So this is him. He sat the disciples down post-feeding of the 4,000, and he's going to try and spell it out here. And um, he says this. The disciples have forgotten to bring bread. Lots of bread problems, like serious bread issues. It's always about bread. Be careful. Oh, no, hang on. The disciples have forgotten to bring bread except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. They're panicking. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, is it because we've got no bread? Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember? So he's trying to teach them. He's getting slightly exasperated now. And he gets them to do a little bit of mental arithmetic, which would have panicked me. I'm terrible at this. But thankfully, the answers are in the text here. Um, Let me ask you some math questions. When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. I bet there was a break in between that question and the answer. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. He said to them, do you still not understand? Do you understand? I don't know if I understand. I do understand. Let me tell you why I understand. Between the feeding of 5,000 people and the feeding of the 4,000 people, something significant happened. And here's the key point that Jesus is trying to get across there in that teaching. He's saying to his disciples, we had less food for the first miracle, but we fed more people and had more food left over. Okay, feeding of the 5,000. Feeding of the 4,000, he's saying, we had more food initially, And we fed less people and had less baskets left over at the end. What's he trying to say? He's essentially saying there's been a drop in the abundance of the miracle. Can you see what he's saying? It's like there's less. It's like it's not as much. It's not happening in the same way it was when there were 5,000. 
So the key question that we need to ask of the text here is what happened in between those two events? Because Jesus seems to think it's very significant between the 5,000 and the 4,000. Here's what happened. Essentially, Jesus had a huge argument with the religious people. So here it is. Um, essentially, he's having an argument with the Pharisees about the food laws. They're saying, Jesus, why do you let your disciples eat food without cleaning your hands? And um, then uh, Jesus says this to them. He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites, as it was written. He said, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God, and instead you're holding on to human traditions. Hearts that are far, worship that is in vain, teaching that is merely human rules. This is why he says this after the feeding of the 4,000. He says, be careful, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. He's sticking with the bread. Notice he's sticking with the bread. Bread's important, sticking with the bread. Notice that what he's saying is the Pharisees and the Herodians are like yeast. What does yeast do? It influences the dough, doesn't it? It causes the dough to rise. It works its way through the whole thing. Tiny little bit of yeast makes its way through the whole dough. And he's basically saying the yeast is bad. So the Pharisees were known for being obsessed with rules and regulations and religion. They'd lost the true purpose of the law and instead they'd added tons of other laws to the existing law and they'd made it about control. What was the yeast of the Herodians? Well, that was essentially secular thinking. We'll let you get on and believe in God, but just don't let it influence anything we do. Don't let it have an effect on the culture that we're trying to build here. He's saying the yeast of the Pharisees and the Herodians, when it works through the dough, what essentially it results in is hard hearts, human thinking, secular wisdom, and it's preventing you guys from getting involved in seeing heaven and earth come back together again. This is the point. Jesus is saying, if you want to fulfill your calling in participating, in bringing those two things back together again, then you need to start thinking like someone who belongs to heaven and not like someone who belongs to earth. Start essentially saying, thinking like me. So the question again for us, trying to do what we saw Jesus doing, trying to have the same power and impact that the early church had in the book of Acts is how? How do we do this? And this is where we get to our passage this morning. Let me just read it again. So after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, these guys were his favorites, uh, with him, and he led them up the high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking to Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let's put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say because they were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud, this is my son whom I love, listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. So what's happening here? Well, this again is a mirror event of an event that happens in the Old Testament. So hundreds of years before this event, we read in the book of Exodus about God's glory also being revealed on a mountain. So God again speaks from a cloud. Everyone's absolutely terrified. Moses, who was the leader of the people of God at the time, climbs up to the top of the mountain and asks God 
where, that he could see his glory. He says, can I see your glory? Begs with God to see his glory. And God basically says, you can't see my glory directly because it will consume you. It will destroy you. It's too much for you. But instead, I'll cover you with my hand and I'll pass by. And then you will have an, a slight experience of my glory. And then we read that Moses comes back down off the mountain and his face is shining with the presence of God, with the power of God. He's reflecting it. Fast forward hundreds of years and Peter's response makes sense. Remember, when we're reading a passage, we're looking for the bit that's quite unusual. So it's all unusual, I get that. But the bit that's really unusual is why does Peter say, let's make a tent? Doesn't, doesn't seem to make sense. Well, what's happening there is he's, he's basically got his Old Testament thinking hat on. He's frightened, and he should be frightened, because essentially he's experiencing the power and the presence of God, and Old Testament Jews would have known, and Jewish people would have known, that this is an incredibly dangerous situation, and therefore we have to create some regulations and some rules and some order around this. And so the Greek word for shelter there, where it says it's good for us to uh, put up free shelters, is exactly the same word for tabernacle. Now, the tabernacle was the tent that the Jewish people used so as to create, essentially, a moving temple. So as to house the presence of God so that they could worship God, which then later um, became Solomon's temple, which was permanently um, in Israel. And therefore, God resided in that temple. And the Jewish people believed that only the great high priest was able to enter the temple and experience the presence of God because it was far too dangerous. Remember we talked about worship a few weeks ago? Um, it's essentially that principle. There's this journey into the presence of God and only the holy are able to get there. What's the point? The point is this passage is about worship and it's about the awesomeness of the presence of God. But there's one huge difference here between the experience Peter, James and John are having of Jesus here and of the Old Testament worship. And the huge difference is this and it's found I'm going to say that's verse 2. Can't read it. There he was, transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. So whereas in Exodus, Moses comes back down off the mountain, have experienced the presence of God, he reflects the glory of God. Jesus goes up the mountain and he produces the glory of God. He is the glory of God. He becomes before them. He's transformed and becomes the very presence and the power of God himself. It says there he's transfigured. The Greek word there is metamorpho. It means to be completely transformed. We get our word metamorphosis from that. Um, it's that process of a caterpillar becoming a butterfly. Remember I talked about that when we talked about worship. The point is this, the disciples are essentially being given a glimpse of what New Testament worship is all about. Whereas in the Old Testament, only particular people at particular times could experience the presence and the power of God because it was too dangerous and they weren't able to mess with it. In the New Testament, all people would be able to experience the presence of God and the temple would no longer be about a building and with bricks and mortar and religion and rules. And instead, if you remember, the switch into the New Testament is the people of God becoming living stones that make up the temple itself. And therefore, the presence and the power of God resides in believers of Jesus. This is a glimpse of what New Testament worship is all about. You remember when I spoke about worship, I said this is one of the most important passages about worship in the New Testament. It's Romans 12. This is Paul talking about worship. He says, therefore, he's just had a big worship session in his letter. He says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern 
of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. What's going on there? That word transformed is exactly the same word used for transfigured in Mark's gospel, metamorphosis, metamorpho, is to completely change, to change our mindset. Essentially what Paul's saying there is what happened to Jesus in the transfiguration is exactly what happens to us when we worship God. When we worship, we start to become more like Jesus. And this makes sense as a general principle in life. Has everyone heard the phrase that we become what we worship? Um, talk about this a lot in church. You become what you worship. So if you worship money, you start to re- reorient your whole life, all your effort, all your passion around money. And then you start to become consumed and defined by money. If you worship your career, you start to reorient your whole life around your career and having success in your career. And therefore, you start to become consumed and you give your worth to your career. If you're doing well in your career, you feel great. If you're doing badly, you feel worth less worship you give worth if you worship relationships or one particular relationship you start to reorient your whole life around that one relationship or relationships and therefore if those relationships are going well then you feel great if those relationships aren't going well as often they do because we live in a broken world and relationships aren't perfect then we feel miserable we give those things the power to redefine us to define our worth what's Paul saying here he's saying if you worship Jesus If you reorient your whole life around the person of Jesus, if you do what it actually means to be a Christian, you follow Jesus, you commit to becoming like Jesus, and you commit to doing the things that Jesus did, all your passion, all your energy, all your time, then what's going to happen is you're going to start to become like Jesus. He's going to start to define you from the inside out. You're going to be transformed And then you're going to start to see the things that Jesus also saw. And you're going to start to see the power and the presence of Jesus worked out in the world around us. How does that fit into the greater narrative of Mark and of the Bible? Well, if we're able to get that right, then we're going to start to see heaven and earth come back together again. Which is amazing. So in order to participate with Jesus in bringing heaven and earth back together, we need to start thinking like Jesus. We need to renew our minds. We need to belong to heaven and not to earthly thinking. We need to be completely transformed so that we are able to think like him. How do we get transformed? We need to worship Jesus. Practically, what does that mean? Anyone read this? (laughs) Um, I read this often. I actually think it's brilliant. The very hungry caterpillar. He's a very hungry caterpillar. Um, Let me read this book. In fact, it's appropriate. You can stay up here for this. I can read it to you. How do we do this? It means we have to become like the very hungry caterpillar. So this is for his sister, Krista, whoever that is. In the light of the moon, a little egg lay on a leaf. You won't get to enjoy the pictures. On Sunday morning, the warm sun came, Sunday morning, the warm sun came up and pop. Out of the egg came a tiny and very hungry caterpillar. He started to look for some food. On Monday, he ate for an apple, but he was still hungry. On Tuesday, he ate through two pears, but he was still hungry. On Wednesday, he ate through three plums, but he was still hungry. On Thursday, he ate through four strawberries, but he was still hungry. On Friday, he ate through five oranges, but he was still hungry. 
On Saturday, he ate through one piece of chocolate cake, an ice cream, a pickle. My kids can name every single one of these, which I always think is quite impressive because you don't eat any of these apart from the ice cream. One pickle, one slice of Swiss cheese, a slice of salami, a lollipop, and a lollipop. A piece of cherry pie, never eaten that. Sausage, we eat that. One cupcake, one slice of watermelon. That night, unsurprisingly, he had a stomachache. The next day was Sunday again. Sunday! The caterpillar ate through some nice green leaf. And after that, he felt much, much better. Now, he wasn't hungry anymore, and he wasn't a little caterpillar. In fact, he was big, and he was fat, because he'd eaten so much. And he built a small house called a cocoon, a little like a temple around himself. He stayed inside for more than two weeks. Then he nibbled a hole in the cocoon. He pushed his way out, and he's transformed, metamorpho. He becomes a beautiful butterfly. Do you want that? What am I trying to say? In worship... It's all about getting hungry for the transforming presence of Jesus. If we're really going to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice to Jesus, it means reorientating everything in our life towards worshipping him. All our energy, all our passion, not just Sunday morning, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, have a binge on Saturday, do it all. Worship God with everything you have and then you'll be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You'll start to become like Jesus and then we'll start to actually see the things that Jesus did happen in our own lives. And we'll have the joy as a church of joining with him in bringing heaven and earth back together again. Amen. Which is why we're now going to worship. So why don't we stand if the band want to come up.